of the ladies room we are your hosts i'm julie decaro my lovely partner jane mcmanus is with me as well as always and we are going to do something a little bit different this week we're going to talk really briefly on the front end because the interview that we have for you guys i think is really poignant and um not something that we want to put a lot of fluff around because i think it, it talks about really important stuff so jane would you agree I agree 100%. Uh, We have Lisa Guerrero this week, and she talks very candidly about her career now, Monday Night Football, the difficulty in kind of finding her footing afterwards. And we just feel like from a mental health standpoint where, you know, we're emerging hopefully from a time I think that has tested a lot of us and our reserves and to be able to find people who can speak candidly about that, particularly when it comes to the intersection of their work. And their mental health is really important. I agree. And I think it's something that women, especially in this industry, struggle with quite a bit. Um, You know, not only is there a constant stream of casual misogyny, um, more pointed misogyny, there's also, um, you know, online harassment. There's feelings of bumping up against a glass ceiling. There's feelings that you're never going to get your shot. There's feelings that, you know, someone else got their shot because she's prettier than you when, you know, you feel that you're more talented. I mean, there's all these things I think that women in this industry deal with because there are so few of us, um, relatively speaking. So, um, you know, I posted on Twitter last night that I'm going back into therapy today because I'm um, dealing with, you know, sort of existing at a level of just low key rage at all times about just the stuff that happens on Twitter all the time and the stuff we see in the news when it comes to the way women's sports are treated. And it's just kind of the point where like, I, I feel like it's consuming me and I need to, um, ask for some help. And so I think Lisa did a really, uh, has really come out the other side of her issues. Not that she doesn't still feel that way sometimes, but I think that she has a lot of great advice. So I'm excited to hear what she has to say. 100%. Should we get straight to it? Yeah, let's get to it. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with Lisa Guerrero. Joining us in the ladies' room is a fantastic, award winning investigative journalist, sportscaster, broadcaster, tweeter, artist, creator. She's a jack of all trades. It is Lisa Guerrero host of Inside Edition, and you probably remember her from Monday Night Football and from the best damn sports show, period. And for my money, the best moment in Moneyball. Get out of my shot, please. You get out of my shot, please. Every time oh, I watch that- it, I'm like, that's my friend to everybody. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, thank you for that awesome, awesome introduction. And it's great to be here with you, ladies. Hello, Julie. Hello, Jane. Um, so Moneyball, I have to say something about this because it's it's streaming again. And so every time it becomes available, I get people tweeting out to me about the, the scene or the montage that comes about halfway through the film. And they had already finished filming Moneyball when um, the director, Bennett Miller, decided that there needed to be a scene in the locker room where there was some kind of accountability for this weird, you know, the beginning of that A's season 
uh, where there were a lot of questions and, and he didn't feel like there was pushback enough in the film as it was. So they added after the whole film had been, you know, had been shot. And of course it was written by um, Aaron, uh, Aaron Sorkin. And so he secretly behind Aaron Sorkin's back decided to film something that he didn't write. And so he invited me to this locker room scene and he basically said, you know, I've seen video of you. And I was actually in the locker room for opening day with the A's that year. And Mm -hmm. in their research, they saw me. And so they called me in and they said, basically, we just want you to give the guys the business, like what you did back then. Um, And so I interviewed each of the guys at their locker rooms like I did then. And so it, it was completely improvised and a montage. but. As you guys know, when you're one of the few women in a locker room, uh, there is a lot of pushing and shoving and clawing to try to get your bite. And if you're standing in front of somebody's locker and there's 20 guys around you trying to elbow you out and you've waited and you've got your moment and you need your one or two sound bites by, you know, by themselves, that athlete by himself without 10 people with their microphones and you wait and you wait and you wait until you finally get your shot. And then you start and you ask a great original question. And then everybody's got their hand in there to grab that sound bite, to steal that bite from you. And as a woman, they would physically get in my space. And so from waist up, I would hold my microphone out to, you know, the athlete, but my foot would be kicking them out of the way. I'm like, my right (laughs) foot would be kicking or pushing them with my hip or my other hand, like shoving them out of the way, out of my shot. And at certain points, I would have to say, get out of my shot, you know, excuse me, could you please get out of my shot? It's my shot. And so Bennett Miller says, wait, 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 cut, cut, cut. What are you doing? What is going on? And so I had to explain to him what I just explained. And because the extras were confused and the actors playing the baseball players were confused because they weren't real baseball players, although a couple of them were, but most of them were confused. And so he's like, can you please explain? And I explained this and he goes, oh my God, can you do it again? So I I didn't ever think that that moment would make it. And I was so glad it did because it started this discussion among some people in sports and some of my peers about how difficult it is for women in a locker room to do the physical work. I mean, it's one thing to be respected in locker room and to be able to ask good questions and to earn your credibility and all that. But it's another thing altogether to physically be in a position to grab your soundbite and to physically... um, elbow your way in. And when people say about, you know, climbing the ladder and clawing your way up, I mean, if you're a woman in a locker room over an an amount of years, if you're a beat reporter, as you guys know, it's a physical uh, prospect. And I'm glad that that ended up in the film because I don't think people really get that. And it got a lot more physical than, than even the film showed, but people that have been in locker rooms with me, like Chad Kruder, for example, a former Dodger player, he was there when I was the beat reporter for the Dodgers with Fox, and he saw me doing that every day. And he was the consultant for Moneyball. So when I first did that, and the director was confused, and the actress said no, <laughs> Chad was laughing and going, "Oh yeah, I've seen her do it. That's what she does. I mean, that's <laughs> how she got her fight." I usually wind up. This is where roller derby really came in handy. I was playing while I was a Jets beat writer, and so hip checks were definitely something that I employed in a scrum like that. We used to have a thing where you'd go where it would be writers first and then cameras. And you, so like when cameras had their time, you know, the writers step back. But when it was writers, there were a couple of times like where cameras would try to like really take the space that my head occupied. And I have my technique was the hip check, but also 
putting my notebook up so that it blocked their shot. Yes. Nice. So just, well, you got to do it. You must. Yes. You really do. You have to have a strategy. You're exactly right on that. I usually wind up under somebody's really smelly armpit, you know, because the guys are taller and they reach over your head and I'm just like, but I will say this when I went to Pakistan and I was, I like used the things I learned in locker rooms and fought my way up to the front of the baggage check carousel (laughs) and almost caused an international incident because apparently women aren't supposed to do that there. You're supposed to like wait for, (laughs) wait for all the men to get their stuff or whatever, or wait for a guy to bring it to you. And I just like jostled my way up to the front and got my baggage. And apparently that was like a big problem. Unbelievable. I love that story. Wow. Yeah. So, so Lisa, so I, you know, part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because I, you know, I posted a tweet the other day and I was talking about self-care in this industry. And I feel like a lot of times, and, and obviously, you know, you're an inside edition now, but we all know you worked in sports for a million years, not, not a million, cause you're so young and lovely, but <laughs> yeah, sure. obviously sure. you're a veteran sports reporter. So I was talking about, you know, a lot of times I feel like, and, and honestly, to, if to full, honestly, I'm going back into therapy to deal with this issue. I feel like yeah. I'm just existing at like a, just a simmering rage, just at like all the shit I see on Twitter, all the like headlines that are misogynistic, all the like outlets that announce their new shows that have like five guys and no women, like just the, the like casual misogyny of the industry day after day after day. And that's not even talking about like the explicit sexism and everything that gets thrown at you. So what was your experience working in sports like from that? point of view? You know, I started in, in the nineties, 96 was my first sports gig. And I was the only woman um, on television covering sports in Los Angeles at the time. And it was, um, you know, it was a real mixed bag for me because there was this, the reason that I got hired originally was definitely because they were looking for a weekend sports guy at CBS too, here in Los Angeles. And I auditioned as the weekend sports guy. And I, you know, I basically um, somehow tricked them into hiring me because I didn't have a resume. Um, I didn't go to broadcasting school. I, you know, I had been a model and an actress, but I knew sports and I was good on camera and I looked like a model. And the GM said, well, she's really pretty, but she knows sports and she's kind of feisty. And I had never worked with an IFB before. I didn't know what a stand-up was. I had never done live television. And they just threw me on the air during a live broadcast of a Dodgers game from the photographer's pit. And I, you know, I, I wasn't a formally trained broadcaster. I just loved sports and I loved talking about it and was enthusiastic about it, but I also looked attractive. So I, I made this kind of, um, uh, I guess, um, how do you say it? I compromised a lot throughout my entire sports career because I knew part of my job was looking good. But part of my job was pushing back to the athletes on, for example, Best Damn Sports Show. Um, another example is, you know, early in my career, I auditioned to be a co-host for a sports trivia game show called Sports Geniuses. And I auditioned in a suit and I had three or four auditions and it came down to, um, you know, one other woman and I and Matt Baskurgeon and he was hired. And then I get the phone call the day before you're hired, you're going to be the co-host. So I show up to wardrobe the next day and there's a rack of leotards. Mm. And I said, surely this is somebody else's dressing room. You know, I'm calling 
the producers. I'm calling the production assistant. You know, where's my dressing room? No, this is your dressing room. Well, whose wardrobe is this? This is your wardrobe. Well, I wore a pantsuit. This is not my wardrobe. I'm not wearing a leotard. So yes, you're wearing leotard. So I get on my phone and it was a whole day of torturous phone calls back and forth. And what I should have done and what I didn't do was walk away and say, I don't want that job. But what I did was I took the job and was really bitter about having to wear these outfits. And that became my persona on that show. Sports Geniuses was this bitch that came out, you know, kind of ragefully and gave shit to all of the the male contestants and the male athletes that were the guests. And people thought it was funny and it was a shtick, but it was really my rage, but it was my fault because I compromised. So my entire, especially my early career was a series of, okay, I'm the only woman that is, you know, doing the sports updates. I'm the only woman on this network. I'm the only woman allowed to do this job. And so I want to keep this, you know, I I want this platform and I love sports and I care um, about, you know, telling these stories in the world of sports with my voice. But if the way to do it is I have to wear the short skirt, then I guess I'm going to wear the short skirt. Fast forward, you know, years later, I look back, I'm writing a book about this now, but I look back and I, I go, what would have happened if I would have walked out? You know, would I, would I be doing a different job today? Would I have had a different job then? Would they have negotiated with me so I could wear the pants? Who knows? I'll never know. But at that point, I started to realize getting to your point, Julie, and your question about self-care was I was rageful all the time about it. I was depressed. I was, I, I dealt a lot with a lot of self-loathing. Um, but I knew I was opening doors for other women because as soon as they hired me for that job on CBS two, the ratings exploded. And suddenly at KTLA, they hired a woman, Claudia Trejos. And so all of a sudden there's two women covering sports and then three. And then by the time I left sports, every single um, station here in Los Angeles had a woman and they were all doing well. And so, you know, I think, you know, in, in, in the years that went by, a lot of people came down on me, um, you know, from Christine Brennan to, you know, various women in sports throughout, you know, and of course all the men saying, well, she was just a bimbo. She was a sex, um, you know, she was a sex symbol or she was just a model or just a cheerleader. And, um, you know, none of them could have been as hard on me as I was on myself. And so I spent a lot of time in therapy. I spent a lot of time writing and journaling about it, raging about it, but then saying to myself, fuck them, fuck them, because I'm getting some of the best sound bites in town. I'm getting some of the best sit down interviews. I scooped Bob Costas to get, you know, Barry Bonds twice when he wasn't speaking to the media, et cetera. And every day I walked into best damn sports show period and had to fight with those guys and try to get my point across, whether it was about a player strike or quarterback controversy or whatever it was, I was able to tell my story to have my perspective on that national platform and whether or not they made me wear that, that, you know, the short skirt. And I did, it didn't, you know, to me at that moment, I was able to, you know, to tell my story and to lend my perspective. And that was a perspective that simply wasn't, it, it didn't exist in sports back then. Because back then, especially in the early 2000s, so 99, 2000, 2001, um, women were definitely anchors and, um, and definitely hosts, but nobody was arguing, fighting every day on live television with athletes, like fighting every single day about the, whatever the controversy of the day was, which was our A block. Nobody did that. And then I went up to the, the update desk 
And I was doing, you know, three live minutes of sports updates throughout the night until 1am. So I would work 12 hours a day. My first job was arguing with the guys and my next job was doing, you know, the sports highlights. And, and so the self-care part of, of the equation was, is really difficult because there are compromises there were back then for me. And to this day, I'm still going through, you know, what that meant for not just myself, but for other women. Did I hurt them? Did I, did I help them? Um, but I made those decisions. They were tough decisions, but the way that I chose to deal with them was through therapy, uh, through writing and through talking a lot about it. Thank God I have a great dad that is still my best friend that really understood it. He's a huge sports fan himself and, and he, he got it, but you know, I, I dealt with suicidal thoughts at one point after Monday night football, and then I went back to therapy and, and that really saved my life. So what you guys are dealing with now is, is much more harsh because now you have social media and Twitter, and I really don't know how you do it because um, it's so devastating and, and shocking and toxic that, that it's almost hard to fathom doing sports as a woman today. I really can't, Lisa, I really can't imagine what it would have been like for you if you'd gone through the Monday Night Football situation during the age of social media. I think it would have been incredibly, like, m- much more difficult if that's possible, just because everything would have been so amplified. Um, I'm sure you've thought about that and, you know, when it happened and and what you had to go through beyond that, but how, how it would be different today. I would have been um, the first uh, sports uh, suicide probably. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in any good way. I was, I was so close to it anyway, that, you know, if, if I would have read that kind of, um, shocking, uh, toxic hate driven, you know, garbage at that point in my life, when I was so delicate and so overwhelmed, I I probably would have killed myself because I thought about it back then. In, well, and I, think I can only I, imagine it would have been amplified. Yeah. Well, and I think I speak for a lot of women who say, and, and a lot of people who say, thank God you didn't. And I'm glad you didn't. And I'm yeah. glad that you were able to get the help that you needed. I, I mean, I really do think that beauty is a double-edged sword when it comes to our business, um, because it may be the reason that you're hired. And I think, but I think any woman that's hired is asked to make those kinds of compromises that you have a job. So you're going to be quiet about some of the things that you see in the business. You're not going to make such a big noise about the, the sexism or how you're gendered or any of that stuff or the opportunities that you're denied or the things that you're asked to do or the leotards in the wardrobe. You know, I mean, I think that there, those compromises are inherent to kind of being able to go and have the platform that you had. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's what, that's what I told myself through that time, you know, yes, um, they're asking me to make these compromises, but I just got a blog on, you know, on the LA times, you know, website. And, and so I get to talk about my stories and I get to talk about the perspective of when, when they cover sports, um, remember being, um, the first woman. So here in Los Angeles, Dodgers used to have, um, every year they would have this, uh, pregame, which was the uh, broadcasters versus the uh, print media. So it was a media game. And I was the first woman to be invited to play in the media game. And I ended up winning the game for the broadcasters. And it was it was amazing. But there's a team picture where I'm a reporter, and it's all guys. And they, um, you know, they didn't have a, a separate locker room, obviously. So I waited till they were done. And I went in there and did my thing. And I remember thinking to myself, 
at the time when I, you know, when I drove in the winning run, I'm thinking this is why it's okay for me to, to compromise in some things because these guys are shocked beyond like they, they didn't know that I could actually play sports, I, I, but they didn't know that. And so it, it was a big deal at that time here in Los Angeles when that happened, because there'd never been a woman on the team. And then I'm the reason they won. So <laughs> all of those, those, those moments just piled up and I'm like, okay, this is why, this is why I'm doing it. Every night I would go, okay, this is why I got to say this, I got to retaliate like this, <laughs> you know? And so there were these small little victories that to me made a difference. But by the time I got to Monday night football, you know, the whole game had changed and the spotlight was so much bigger and brighter and I was not ready for it. And, and, you know, I crashed and burned and I, you know, I just wasn't equipped by myself to deal with that level of scrutiny and negativity. And, and, you know, thank goodness. I, I, I say this all the time and I'm sorry for being redundant, but thank God I have the dad I do who was able, you know, he was himself a counselor and Salvation Army, social worker, therapist, a girl dad. So <laughs> he was really able to help me through that. And then of course, going to the, the therapist was the final thing. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just a series of, it was a series of compromises. And I'm so sorry today that women have to compromise still. If you would have asked me in 1996, would women, you know, years from now have to deal with that stuff I dealt with? I would say, are you kidding? Of course not. You know, we're, we're, we're going to be much more evolved than that. And it's, it's worse because of social media, I think. Yeah. And, you know, Jane made a great comment the other day when we were talking about, you know, online harassment and she said, you know, this is why, you know, it's hard sometimes for employers to hire women because then you have to protect them. And I'm wondering about, you know, your thoughts on employee. I mean, obviously I, I feel like whenever you're in the middle of a mass harassment storm, whenever, um, you know, you're being criticized and it's not sincere, it's not genuine. It's just the, like, you know, the terrible trolls doing the thing they do. Um, your employer has an obligation, I think to try to protect you and to stand up for you and to do things for you that help you get through that, whether it's, you know, Mm -hmm. making counseling available or, um, you know, letting someone else take over your social media account. But we, we never hear about that. You know, we always do. I have so many women who are like, oh, I'm going to therapy or I'm, you know, I'm doing this. We're all sort of doing this on our own without any kind of institutional support. And I think of, you know, Emily Wilder and I think of Felicia Somnes and I think of, what happened to me at, at my radio station and what happened to Hamel Javari at USA Today, where these m- mobs attack you and all these people want to have the diversity hires because they want to be able to say, oh, look, we have women. Look, we have people of color. But when your voice gets you, I don't want to say in trouble because it's not that you said something wrong. It's that you said something unpopular to a certain demographic and they are well organized and they're coming at you. What responsibility do employers have to try to protect their reporters? Well, they, uh, first of all, the reason that, that they're hiring diverse voices is to give different opinions about things that aren't popular. I mean, that's, that's kind of why we're there and other people are there to cover, whether it's sports or politics, um, investigations like I do now, you know, we, you want, um, a diverse uh, cadre, uh, journalists to be telling these stories with their perspective. And when you don't have the support, when the, the, cause there is going to be pushback, of course, for every, there's going to be pushback. So if they're not prepared, 
with that, you know, that wall of defense behind you, then what's the point of just throwing you to the wolves? Because that's, that's what it seems like they do when they don't have your back. And, you know, I, I think it's just a matter of them not following through with the logical progression, which is, okay, if I put a woman in this position and she says things that are going to upset some men, then we've got to now think of what, what is our plan to support her? And I don't think they've thought that through. And most big companies, you know, that I've worked for their bottom line is protecting the big company, right? The lawyers aren't there to protect you. The company is not there to protect you. (laughs) You know, they're there to make money. They're there for their shareholders and their lawyers are there to protect the brand, not to protect you. So you are out there on your own. Um, and, you know, hopefully you have a union, hopefully. And, and, and by the way, I've, I've found that the unions are usually on the side of producers um, in, so, in so many instances. So they sell you down the river too. So it's really, really, really um, uh, frustrating to see the continuation of these same storylines because they've been going on for now uh, decades and there's not a backup from your, your company, your paper or your show. I mean, I, I think that's, that's really true. In some ways you really are on your own, which means that whenever you do say something out loud about uh, the way, you know, people are, are treated, whether it's, you know, from the point of view of, of gender or from race or from, you know, national origin or anything like that, there's a real opportunity for you to have to pay for that, you know, with your job in some cases. Um, and I, you know, and, and I wanted to know from you, you, you're not, you know, you, you were one of the, the first women kind of in a, on a large stage like that in sports, but, you know, also one of the first, if not the only Hispanic woman at that time. Um, and I wonder like what, you know, what were some of the issues that you had to deal with from that point of view? And what are some of the things that you, you posted this great uh, photo of a young woman um, who had graduated, who decided to take her graduation photo in the field with her parents who were laborers and um, migrant and farm workers and just what that means also. Um, and to, to kind of have, have that constituency as well behind you. When I um, thank you for that question, it's so important. It's important to me personally. Um, when I started you know, I was born Lisa Coles. My dad is of uh, English heritage. He's white. Um, his name's Walter Coles. And um, he married a Latina immigrant from Chile, Lucy Guerrero. And um, my mom died young. And one of the things she told me before, um, she died when I was eight and she was 29. And I remember one of the things she would tell me all the time was, you're really a girl. Like, she'd almost like whisper this to me. You're really a Guerrero. And you know, Guerrero means warrior. War- you're a warrior. And when I was little, before I was eight years old, he didn't really understand what that meant. But I remember her saying that to me all the time. And as I got older, um, I really wanted to, when I had an opportunity to have a platform first as, um, you know, a model and an actor, and then later as uh, a broadcaster, I wanted to, to be able to use my platform to show young women that that last name, Guerrero, on the Chiron could mean that you have opportunities also in television. And, you know, one of the things I had done early in my career was because I was, I was acting and I, you know, was a sports fan and sports lover and thought someday I would want to be a sports reporter, but I was told by everybody in the business, you can't be both, you know, you have to choose one or the other, you can't be an actor and a broadcaster. 
So I did one headshot and one resume as Lisa Coles and got an acting agent as Lisa Coles. And I got, I put together a completely different headshot and bio um, as Lisa Guerrero and got a broadcast agent. And I didn't tell the agents that I had the other or that I was the other. And so for a long time, I went on auditions and I got jobs um, with two different headshots and names because I was told you couldn't do both. And then on one crazy day, um, I got two jobs on the same day. I you know, was hired by Aaron Spelling to play Francesca Vargas in Sunset Beach, which was you know, me as an actor. And I got the job on CBS2 as the weekend sports guy. And so we decided for a minute to combine my last names, Lisa Guerrero Coles, which became ridiculous. And then I dropped the Coles altogether legally and just became Lisa Guerrero because I felt like it was important to, to have that, that, you know, that connection to my heritage, to honor my mother's memory and to, to let young girls know that you can have that last name. I grew up without seeing that last name or a Lopez or, you know, any of those Latino last names in broadcast. I certainly never saw them in broadcasting, very rarely in acting. Um, so now, you know, moving forward, I have young women that, that have, um, you know, that grew up seeing me and remember watching me or their dads watched me or their brothers. And, and I, I feel like I have helped give them some kind of inspiration by, by just seeing the last name there. Um, and so, yeah, that's really important to me. And, you know, I do a lot of work with, um, with the Salvation Army and, you know, uh, migrant issues and, and, you know, raising funds for uh, free dental and, and uh, medical clinic for um, migrant workers in Central California. And, and so that's just a big part of my heritage and, and who I am. But yeah, it was a, it was a conscious choice that I made as an adult to honor my mom, to honor my heritage and to, to show that, that you could have this platform. I love that. And I, I love your mom saying that, you know, that it really, it means warrior. Do you ever get tired though, of feeling like you have to be a warrior all the time? Like I feel a lot like I am just constantly fighting, 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 no matter what I'm doing. Um, pushing back and being like the difficult one and, you know, getting a reputation as being difficult and all those kinds of things. And, and I, I'm always looking for like a, a better way to try to think about it so that I can be a little bit kinder to myself, but I feel like I fail at that quite a bit. Yeah. It's, and it's, that's really easy to do because um, even in what I do now as an investigative reporter, I'm like confronting people. Like my job is to be a disruptor. And, and I was doing that in sports and, and now that is, that's my gig. You know, I hold a phone or microphone and I go ask tough questions, people that don't want to answer those questions at all. And um, now I, I look at it differently. Like I used to think, Oh my God, I'm always a pain in the ass. I'm always my, my right. <laughs> used to say, I'm, I'm a, I'm a lightning rod for controversy. And I was like, okay, I'm so, I'm a bitch then. That and was literally I'm, a Chicago Tribune headline about me. That I'm a really? lightning rod. Yes. I'm a lightning rod. Yep. Again, I that that couldn't be that is such a huge compliment. And and you know, it used to hurt my feelings because I I feel like I'm a really nice person. <laughs> my girlfriends, and some of them don't know sports or care about sports at all, they can't believe that I have had that reputation or still have that reputation as being, you know, a pain in the ass. And let me can I know, just interject here? Yeah, real quick? please. Uh, my, one of my very good friends and I have a multi-million dollar, um, idea for, and then you can take it if you want, somebody else can go with it. It's like, but we think we should get t-shirts with the word difficult 
um, on them. Yeah. And because that would just yeah. be kind of like, you know, I think the whole, every woman in the world could use a shirt like that, honestly. Bob, let's yeah, just put we, it in like, in like, you know, cafe press or something. <laughs> exactly. Difficult. Definitely. Definitely. Yes. I know I'll buy three in each size. Um, it's, <laughs> it's weird to me that, um, that, that still is, you know, the way that, that, that men view us, but what I learned to do and what I think is really important is that I have, I have now been able to care a lot less about what the men think about me. And I have been able to, to care a lot more about what women think about me. And a lot of that was changing, you know, from doing sports to doing investigations, because we have so many women, you know, female viewers and fans that now they think I'm a badass. So now that I'm difficult and a pain in somebody's ass, that's good. When I was in sports, I was just a pain in people's ass. And, you know, and then they got to say, you know, oh, and you're, you're just a bimbo and, and, you know, you were in Playboy or, or Maxim or whatever, and I don't respect you. But, you know, obviously it did respect me enough to, to care about what I was saying and thinking and writing about and talking about. So, um, you know, I, I know that it's difficult to say this to you guys because you're in sports. But one of the best things I did was to get out of sports. And I joke with my dad now, you know, I, you know, I spent so much time lifting these men up and, you know, reporting on a, a, a groin pull or something as if it was important. And it's really not. And they're not, they're just not. And, you know, when you're a professional athlete in the moment, and believe me, I was married to one in the moment, they think that, that, you know, that nothing is going to change that They are going to be the man forever. And they will quickly find out that they're not that man. And the next generation takes over and then the next, and then people don't even know who you are to ask you for your autograph anymore. And I, I, I look at myself sometimes as my, my role when I was covering sports as, you know, giving these guys this platform to be these stars. And now I'm just so glad that I don't do that anymore because, um, in a lot of ways, nothing is more irrelevant than some guys pulled groin. And I remember like just chasing these stories and especially these injuries and just thinking that was so important. And I had to be the first, and I had to cover it the best. And, and now I'm like, you know, fuck it. I I'm doing a lot more important things now by not caring about, you know, those guys. And so now my audience are, you know, these women really are and young kids because now my stories go onto YouTube. So once they're broadcast on inside edition, the investigations go right to YouTube and kids watch me on their devices and they binge my investigations. And now they look at me like I'm Wonder Woman. And so young boys and girls look at me like I'm a badass. And yeah, I'm a pain in somebody's ass, but it's because I'm chasing bad guys. And so that whole like difficult woman thing has now worked to my advantage because I'm just using that skill set of being, I guess, a pain in somebody's ass differently. You know, it's it's definitely a more substantive way of being able to do your job. And in some ways, like in journalism, I, I would love to be a, an investigative sports reporter. I mean, I think that's a value. Yes. Job, but, but unfortunately, there are fewer and fewer of them now because broadcasters don't want the hassle of doing investigative work on, you know, leagues that are their partners uh, and yes. that they're making money off of. So it's a, it's a whole different relationship. Um, and I also want to point out like your Playboy um, moment like how yeah. tame that is in the current environment. Yeah. Like my daughter and I were just watching Megan the Stallion's new, new video, and I was like, "A lot of ass, yeah. huh?" Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, yeah, "A little too much ass," but I really like Megan the Stallion, you know. So I, it's just hilarious to me how, like, you know, we used to sit there 
have that debate about, wow, should Brandy Chastain have taken her shirt off? I don't know. And, um, and these just, these, yeah. these little discussions look so quaint. I think as attitudes have evolved on that. Somebody sent me an article and I think it was in the LA times might've been USA today. Um, I had, when I was at Fox, you know, they were, they were billboards of me, you know, looking like this hot tamale and, you know, they, you know, who's hotter, you know, who's hotter than Lisa G nobody like this, like crazy, ridiculous, you know, campaign that was way over the top, especially at the time. And there was a picture of me where I had my blouse unbuttoned and no bra underneath. And it's like, mine's exploded. It was the, it was the most shocking thing in sports, I guess, at the moment, at the time. And, um, people were, were, you know, outraged about this. And I just took out that picture recently. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is the most tame. This is nothing compared yeah. to, <laughs> you know, anything. And it, and it, it, by the way, I really liked the picture I was. And I remember thinking at the time, cause I had been a former model. And I had been, you know, I grew up in Huntington Beach and, and San Diego in my swimsuit. I'd been a swimsuit model. And so to me, being sexy in pictures was not like, that means you can't cover sports now, or you don't know anything about man on man versus zone. Cause you look good in a bikini just does. It didn't to me, um, equate until I, I realized how shocking it was and how people reacted so negatively about it. But you know, who didn't react negatively with the fans, the fans didn't care. But, you know, it was really the rest of the media that, that, that really was, was so brutal to me. But you're right now I look at that Playboy magazine and it's like, are you kidding me? It's just so, it's really, really tame. And you know what? We should all be glad to have beautiful pictures of our 20 year old bodies or 25 or 30. No kidding. You know what I'm saying? Like as an old lady now, you know, it's, it's good to have a couple of those around. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> look, it's not, and, I, and I'm not saying that young broadcasters should get naked and help their career. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But, but my choices at the time were difficult choices. And some of them I regret. I really do. And I did make compromises that if I could have done it again, you know, maybe I would make very different choices. But that's just part of being a human being and, and living a life and, and looking back, if you're honest, saying, you know, no, I wouldn't have done everything the exact same way, like some people do. You know, I, you know, I wish I would have had more courage to stand up for myself and others in, in, in different situations. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when I do look back on that stuff, it just seems so trivial and small. But yeah. at the time, it was huge. And it did cause me to, you know, like at one point, consider ending it. And, and that's why it's really important for people that are going through these crises to be able to have somebody to talk to, because what that does is it gets you time. It buys you time before you do something drastic. So when you think about it, if you can write about it, if you can take a pause, if you can sleep on it, these are such important things because in time, these things are not as, as, as crucial and as, uh, as important does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the totally. best mental health things I ever heard in that regard is that suicide is too permanent a solution to a temporary problem. And, and even though exactly. it never seems temporary at the time, looking back, it's always temporary. You know, it's, you know what I mean? And even some of these, these tweets from, from these garbage people, you know, they're, they're so brutal in the moment when you read all the guy, I know the feeling you get sick to your stomach, you get nauseous. Um, I start to like, I get a physical reaction where the blood, I can feel the blood Me kind too. of get hot in my yep. ears. And I feel this physical, like 
It's hard to breathe. And almost like a mini heart attack. Like I can feel my heart racing or skipping a beat. And so there's this physical thing that washes over me when I read these things. And then weirdly, if I go back, which I, I don't like to go back and read shitty things, but if I do, then on the second or third read, they're not nearly as bad as they seem to be. And they do become less harsh with time. And then you also notice, okay, who wrote this? And then you go back and look at their feed and they're shitty to every single woman. It's not just you. It's, you know, it's just their shtick. That's what they do. And a lot of it is anonymous or, you know, these fake profiles and, and what have you. But, but ultimately with time and distance, it's not nearly as, as horrible or as scary or as, as terrible as you think it is in that, that first flush, that first flush is so horrible. And I, I could not agree you. more. It's, and it's not about you. It's about whatever they are dealing with or whatever their, you know, yes. thing is. And I, and honestly, Lisa, I think that's part of what was so harsh about what you went through was that you were brought in in some ways because you were beautiful. And then you were shamed because you were beautiful and you were, it was played up and then it was pushed back. And it was very much not about you so much as I think it was this very particular moment in the late nineties, early two thousands, when women were becoming owning more of their sexuality. And, and it became this thing where it was still though, some of these 1950 mores were applied to women and you were really stuck in the middle where you were not given, you know, you, you were not allowed to be just who you were in an authentic way. It was very much about what the world thought of your sexuality. You know, I often look back and I think, you know, what if I had been allowed that year to learn on the job because I had never done sidelines before and to, to do the kind of job that I thought I was hired to do originally, which kind of, there was a bait and switch that happened there. But if I was allowed to do that and grow with the job, because I certainly knew football and I loved it and had a good relationship with the players and coaches, I think I could have brought something different and unique to that party. And had I been allowed to do that, I think, you know, that, that my career would have gone in a really different, fruitful way. And I think that also could have helped the show. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, what happened happened, but I just wasn't at the plate. Now I think there is that room for a woman to be able to, to be, you know, you're allowed to be this and that and the other. And, but back then there was, there was the time when women were just starting to be able to, to be attractive and sports knowledgeable and funny and self-deprecating and like all the things that, that make for a really interesting TV personality. But at that time it wasn't, it was very much, you know, you've got to be X's and O's and you better cover up that cleavage and no, get back to wardrobe because it needs to be an inch higher, you know, while I'm scrambling to, to come out and do my pregame report. So there was, there was all of this weird stuff going on at that moment, as you mentioned, Jane, and it was a unique moment. I don't think that would have happened a year or two later. And you know, certainly wouldn't happen today. I think women are allowed to be, you know, more fully themselves. Um, but I, I certainly bore the brunt of it that year. And I'm not crying, you know, oh, woe is me. I was given a lot of opportunities. Um, and I'm so glad I was. But there, I, I often look back and I go, what if I was able to just do what I wanted to do that season? What if, you know, and that's life. What if? Yeah. And, and I mean, and not even, I, it, this is a whole other show, you know, the idea that women still are not, I don't think, given space to learn and grow on the job the way that men are, and particularly the sons of broadcasters are. 
Yeah, um, I feel like right? you know, every time I turn it on, I see some like 20 year old guy with a famous last name in the booth who's not particularly good, but he's going to be allowed to grow into that position. Whereas women, I feel, you know, and I know a lot of women who've been in the booth feel this way that you get one shot at it. And if you screw it up, you're done. And yeah. that's it. And you don't get another shot. Lisa Guerrero, um, I'm so glad we were able to talk with you. I know you are a person that I look to, um, you know, for inspiration all the time and for strength and for courage and all those things that you represent to so many of us. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Jane. This was a lot of fun. And and by the way, you guys are just kicking ass. I'm so proud of you. And I'm so proud of you pushing back and being strong and, and give yourself give yourself the right to grieve about stuff that hurts because it's okay and it's human, but what you're doing is so much more important that you get back on the field and continue to do what you're doing. I'm so glad we were able to get Lisa on. Um, Like I said, she's somebody who, you know, I have looked to for years as, as someone to sort of steady me and someone who's really been through the ringer and always understands what you're talking about when you're upset. Um, and, and I'm so glad that we were able to get her here to share her wisdom. hundred percent. And I think she really illustrates that double standard, which is women, you know, who might be hired, their looks are a factor in the reason that they're hired, but then also just completely set up to fail in some ways and not giving the institutional supports to really be able to succeed in a, in what was a very different job for her, you know, something that she hadn't done before. I, I just, I love her candor. You know, it was a really, um, it was a, a really interesting time, I think. And just, you know, personally, I was always worried that if I didn't come across as a hundred percent a journalist, you know, that, that, that would derail my career. It felt like there was a very fine line, um, you know, if to pretend with what you were wearing or any of that stuff. Yeah. And I think it just goes to show how, you know, the standards for women in the business were different. And, and as she says, you know, you really weren't able to be yourself in a lot of ways. You had to play a role or you had to, or you, or you would be severely punished. Yeah. And playing a role, I think is something that a lot of us identify with. If you weren't, I mean, this might, I mean, I'm sure it's the same for women that are hired for their looks, but like, if you're not like, I was not hired for my looks, obviously. And I, you know, it seems like to me, like such a small problem, like, oh my God, if, if I had to, you know, go out there and wear a short skirt, like, fine, I'm still going to beat you with my brain. But, um, you know, you don't, because no one ever has said to me, Julie, put on a super, super short skirt. So it's like, it's, see, we don't, I think the grass is always greener is a thing that, that we have a lot in this industry, whether it's someone who's really beautiful, someone who's really smart, someone who's really funny, someone who has a ton of support and resources. Like, I think we're always looking at the other person as like, wow, I wish I had what they had, not necessarily realizing that we all have issues in different ways. Now, see, this is the thing, because I never begrudge anyone for any way that they get a job, honestly. Like, if you get a job in this business, congratulations. But it's where you go from there. And I feel like that's something that, you know, we all have our own individual strengths and weaknesses. And we, you know, you have to work really hard to to kind of try to, and, and you may not succeed anyway. Like, it may be you get hired for one thing, and then there's another faction in a company or on a newspaper that isn't on your, on your team. And then, you know, it's very difficult to succeed, but at the same time, you know, I just think that, um, you know, sometimes women have not been super supportive of each other in this business and I am guilty Mm -hmm. of that. So I don't mean to sound like I'm coming in from above. I am. I think we've all been guilty of that at some point. Yeah. And I just think it's real. we really need to be uh, able to give each other a break and to under, try to understand, you know, what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes, whether they're 
flats or heels. Or right. Or stilettos. Yeah. Designer, perfectly whatever. shaped calves. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, you know, I'm so grateful that writing has always been my thing. Um, because I feel like if you can fall back on writing, it's, you know, you could always just do the like, well, I'm really a writer kind of thing, you know? And I just feel like that is something to hold on to in a way that if you're hired because you're beautiful or because you're funny on camera or whatever, it's just a more, to me, it's a more substantial thing. And so I've always been really grateful that that has been my strength. Like if I wasn't a very good writer, I think I'd feel much more adrift in this industry. Does that, does that make sense? No, hundred percent. And, and, and it's, I will say as an educator, that's the thing that I try to convey to all of our students is that, you know, you may think you want to talk sports on TV, or you may think you want to be a blogger or whatever it is, but you really have to have the writing skills down because it translates into every piece of this business and what you would end up doing. Writing ad copy is a writing skill, right? You know, writing social media. So is absolutely. And, or even, even writing the scripts for TV, for what you're going to say on TV, that's a writing skill. So all of these different things, the base and the core of it is writing. And so if you're good at that, then that's going to make it a lot easier. And if not, you have to work harder. Yeah. hundred percent agree. It's an anchor that you can hang on to in a storm. Yeah. All right. Um, that was great stuff. I'm again, so grateful to Lisa. I wanted to talk briefly about what we saw happen in Euro on what day was it? Friday, Saturday, when Christian Eriksen collapsed on the pitch. Yes. Saturday, Denmark versus Finland. Um, and thank God for his teammates who, you know, one of whom Simon Kiar immediately recognized what was happening and, um, started CPR which is something yeah. that I, I think more of us all need to know how to do. Um, it was a terrifying moment. And, and then there was a lot of talk about what shot should have been shown, you know, um, what should the game have been played? Just well, I think, for- let's just explain for, in, in case our, our listeners didn't see what was happening, but, but the UEFA feed ended up showing Erickson on the field, getting CPR. Yeah. And, it, it, it seemed very graphic to a lot of people who saw it live and, and his teammates, the Danish players surrounded him so that he was blocked. And it also flashed his wife, Ericsson's wife, right. who was of course distraught because, you know, she could have been watching her husband die on the field. I mean, it, it was that dramatic. Right. And yeah. And, and there was a lot of criticism of what was shown, um, you know, take that up with, you know, UEFA. Uh, obviously the Americans are just getting whatever feed is coming out. Everyone else is getting whatever feed is coming out. Um, so, you know, it, it's all sort of water under the bridge because he is okay, but they did come out with medics came out and said yesterday that, you know, he was gone before right. they started CPR and he had a heart attack and we don't know why. Um, and I think that great reminder that, you know, no matter how in shape you are, no matter how um, into fitness you are, no matter how healthy you eat, that, you know, this is stuff that can happen to anybody. Like learn CPR, people. We also need to have defib prattles everywhere. Well, and, and unfortunately, you know, this happens, I think, more often than we realize just because, you you know, it, it maybe doesn't happen at the professional levels quite as much as it does, you know, in youth sports. Yeah. It's, so, so agreed hundred percent. And there of course was a move about what was it 15, 20 years ago to have AEDs, which were those, you know, mm-hmm. electronic defibrillators, uh, within a, a certain distance from a field so that, that athletes, young athletes can be resuscitated. Uh, what I also want to point out about this story though, that has really kind of 
kind of stuck in my craw a little bit uh, is, and, and also with the Danish players have come out and, and been very critical of UEFA because they went into the locker room as the players were reeling from having experienced this and said, well, do you want to go back on the pitch now or do you want to come and play on Sunday? And, um, and several of them have said, well, why wasn't there a third option there? And I, and I just, you know, again, I want to kind of push back on this idea that that the game is the most important thing and that it must be played at all costs. And I think this is a situation where it's a bit unbelievable that they went out and finished the game because the game was no longer the most important thing that had happened that day. Um, and I think we in sports have a very, we do a very bad job of saying that there are things more important than a game. And certainly the UEFA officials should have um, been able to detect that in the moment, I think. Yeah, I mean, knowing UEFA, that is uh, very on-brand for them. Um, I mean, they're one step below FIFA when it comes to the evil index of, you know, the IOC, I think, is up there. And I feel like it's the exact same thing with the Olympics, you know? It's it's where yeah. this is going ahead, come hell or high water. Look at all these people that are here already. Look at all this money that we've spent. I mean, that's pretty much what it comes down to. And Erickson was um, FaceTiming from the hospital telling his teammates I'm okay. You should play the game. I mean, what else is he going to say? Hey guys, I'm in the hospital. I'd really appreciate it if you could wait till I got back. You know I mean? There's nothing else for him to say. And I hate it when we put players in that position of telling their teammates to play the game. Like the Cubs did the same thing with Jason Hayward the night that Jacob Blake was shot and other teams decided not to play. And Jason Hayward decided to sit out. So the lone black guy on the team, they're like, well, he told us to play. Well, what else is he going to say? Right. So the whole thing was just crazy. Well, and we, it, what it does is it says we have no space for an emotional reaction. And I think, you know, players are starting to talk about mental health now and they're starting. And, and this is exactly the problem is that no one at UEFA gave them the space to have an emotional reaction to what had happened. Otherwise they wouldn't even have asked for them to go out and play again, because you have to understand, like, there, there are some quotes from players that are saying that, you know, we only had half a field or half a team because everybody was, you know, the other half was mentally gone. And of course you can imagine that, right? right. You nearly saw a teammate die on the field and, you know, and you're not allowed you instead, you have to robotically go out there and perform a sport as though it's an important thing that's happening. And, and again, I feel like, you know, so, so much of sports I think has been, you know, has been, has been, you know, it's evolved to this place where there is no room for an emotion, a genuine emotional reaction, unless it's anger or celebration and victory. Anything else has to be erased and put aside. Yeah. And, uh, and this, and this is to me emblematic of what happened here. That's such a great point. And, and I would love to know what happened with Erickson FaceTiming them from a hospital bed. Like, I could see if it was the next day, you know, or something where he says, you know, I want my teammates to see that I'm okay. But I suspect what happened was someone said, can you get him on to show his teammates he's okay so they'll play the rest of the game? I mean, I have a feeling that that's how that went down. I mean, and again, in some ways, he's being asked to perform from his hospital bed. Not, not, he's not performing soccer. He's not performing an athletic feat, but he is performing a, a ritual of uh, what, like to absolve his teammates from having to worry about him. Right, and, right. and again, I, I believe that is asking too much in the immediate wake of what has happened. And again, and again, I just, I feel like in sports, you know, this is something that we need to do. We need to be able to acknowledge the reality of, of what people live in addition to understanding that sports are important. And those two things are not in balance right now. And, and it was, it, it was horrifying for a lot of people to have to witness that. Yeah. 
Agreed. I, I couldn't agree more. That's it for us this week here in the ladies room. Hope that you guys will give us a follow on social media at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. Read our work over at Deadspin. And, and this is really important, if you like the show, please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave our rating. We'll see you next week here in the ladies room.